Hello, heroes, and welcome to a new episode of Critical Success. I'm James D'Amato, your Game Master. Normally, I discuss new techniques for playing and how to be a better GM, but this week I want to talk to you about bad games. Really bad games. I'm talking the baddest and worst of games, Heartbreakers. To join me in this discussion, I invited the hosts of one of my favorite new podcasts, System Mastery, onto the show. And since we explained their show and what Heartbreakers are during our discussion, I'll take you right to it. All right, so let's meet our guests for this week. Uh, I brought on John and Jeff from the System Mastery podcast, which if you guys are not listening to, I encourage you to start. We'll talk a little bit more about the show and what it is when we get into the conversation. Uh, But first up, let's uh, say hi to Jeff. Hi there. First off, uh, just so the audience can get to know you and sort of your credentials as a judgmental figure in the role-playing community, <laughs> uh, how long have you been gaming? I wet my teeth on riffs way, way back in, uh, let's see, my sophomore year of high school or so. So you started with riffs? That is correct. My first character ever was a cyber knight of any kind. That it really explains a lot of your tolerance for some of these bananas games that uh, you read. <laughs> It's absolutely true. Uh, I started with Rifts, and then uh, I'd say maybe a week later, after I got in the taste for it, I joined a Dungeons and Dragons campaign. So it wasn't—I mean, my first time was with Rifts, but D and D snagged me up real quick. Of course, of course, yeah. Well, you're never far from Dungeons and Dragons whenever you start in role playing. Nope, not at all. Uh, and John, let's say hi. Let's get you involved. Hey. John, how long have you been gaming? I have also been gaming for about 20 years. God, that's depressing. I know. I didn't want to think about the year. I just went with the high school date. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's let's, let's not put labels on it because that'll just make us think about how we're all going to (laughs) die. Yeah. And And what was your first game? So the first thing I played was also Rifts. <laughs> not with Jeff. Oh no, we we did not. This is a this is a weird coincidence, and that's it. However, in addition to my first game being Rifts, the first character I ever played was also a homebrew OCC. <laughs> <laughs> that's that is how you know you get into the true nerdery right at the start, just thrown into the deep end. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, I've got this game where I can do pretty much anything. Well, that's not good enough for me. I need to not have rules restricting me. Oh yeah. What do you have a burster? That's fire. That's cute. I'm gonna be a shocker. I've got electricity. <laughs> not sound waves like the Spider-Man villain. So you know, <laughs> <laughs> didn't wear carpet samples. Not none of that. <laughs> just shock lightning. <laughs> All right, so now that the audience kind of knows you guys and knows your voices, let's learn a little bit about your show because I have started listening. Like, it's hard to be a regular listener because so much work goes into what you guys are actually doing that you don't have a weekly schedule. But uh, what is System Mastery? Well, sure. Uh, System Mastery is a biweekly podcast. We do our best to get one out every other Tuesday. And the premise of the show is that we dig up RPGs that have fallen off the radar usually because they're out of print, sometimes just because they were so obscure that no one's ever noticed them. And then we read them over the course of two weeks, and then we deliver a critical review, sort of. Almost. Almost. Not really. The goal, ostensibly, is to tell people whether or not these $3 shelf RPGs from your local nerd store are worth your time. Yeah, it's totally going to be a review about a game that you can't find, and we'll let you know whether or not you should. (laughs) 
And as far as I know, you guys have yet to find a game that I should play. Oh no, we've had we've had at least three or four that we're the way that we we don't really have all that confusing rating system. At the very end of each episode, we say, "Would you play this?" And that's that's all we do. We don't have an ABC rating system. And I'd say there are maybe three or four games that we've both given thumbs up to, and some of them are you would not expect that. Oh yeah, there are some that just look like they should be the worst hot garbage you have ever seen. Yeah, and like we felt bad breaking the seal, and then yeah. we open them up, and we're like, "Oh, I can play this." Like uh, I'd say, what like made the made RPG? Oh yeah, which... well that that was yeah that was the first episode that I started on was made, yeah. um, and you, you you convinced me that it would work, but uh... yeah, you could totally play it provided you ignored every skeevy undertone it's got. Yeah, it's provided that you go ahead and go through the entire book with a nice black marker and just get rid of about half of the things that are disgusting in it, and then you're fine. Yeah, and then I think we also both liked uh, Nobilis, which uh, Nobilis is elegant, interesting. I still have no idea how you would play it, but it, it really won me over with charm. So yeah, there's a few. Okay, well, maybe I haven't made it through the... I actually just looked at my podcast app and realized that I've been cutting out more than half of your episodes for oh, some no, no, reason. Oh, no, don't even <laughs> We, we don't recommend listening to all of them that quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about uh, sort of the meat of the show. Most of these games do not come ac- across favorably. There is a tradition in game design and game sales called the Heartbreaker. Um, and most often they are the fantasy heartbreaker. But, uh, you know, these days uh, the wide world of gaming is so wide that there are heartbreakers of all stripes hitting the market. So let's define for our audience what is a heartbreaker in your, uh, like, very informed opinions. Well, uh, there's not really a single given definition for a heartbreaker. But uh, sort of depending on where you're coming from I like to look at Heartbreakers as made by someone who has the only qualification for making an RPG is they have read RPGs. And so they go into it with a thought of, I know what an RPG is, and I know how to make it better. (laughs) I I think they look at something like Dungeons & Dragons and think, well, this is an amazing game, but I've seen a few episodes of television about how crossbows work, so I think I can make this better. By making it clunkier, adding a few rules, maybe removing a few rules that I don't like. A lot of them just feel like Dungeons & Dragons plus someone's house rules in a new book. Yeah, for most of the old fantasy heartbreakers, you can definitely tell the person played D&D and wanted to make a better D&D. And usually what happens is heartbreakers that I've seen have trended towards the realism. Yes, a lot of verisimilitude in the average heartbreaker. Or attempts at it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I feel like heartbreakers really live in fixing problems that aren't really problems. Uh, it's absolutely true. If you ever if you're ever looking for a game that's got a system where your armor can break, you're probably <laughs> looking at a heartbreaker. Ah, yes. The old let's break something that uh, should be a utility piece uh, yeah. idea. Uh, so heartbreakers, like uh, we'll get into the different uh, patterns uh, of the rule types and whatnot. But is is there anything in your opinion that uh, separates it from a simply badly designed game or game that isn't very well known? Well, absolutely. I, I think one of the things to uh, when you've read a lot of the heartbreakers is you can start to see where they came from. Like you read a book like Dark Earth Legends, 
and your first thought is, oh, I'm reading someone's D&D house rules. I, this is D&D with a, with a thin veneer of weird paint on it. Or if you uh, crack open something like Three Pirates, which uh, adventure on the Adventures on the High Seas, that's clearly someone's attempt to simplify and republish Seventh Sea and then also add furries to it because he thought there'd be a market. Uh, so generally, to me, that's the big obvious thing is when you can really see the skeleton that they built on. And every once in a while, we'll come across a game that someone came up with whole cloth. Like, well, you look at something like the Starfleet uh, RPG, not to be conflu- confused with a Star Trek RPG. No, don't, don't confuse them. Starfleet <laughs> is a wholly separate property. But it has an entirely weird terrible, clunky system, but it definitely isn't a heartbreaker because it's not really trying to do something anyone else has done. It's just bad. Yeah, that, that <laughs> clunky system came whole cloth out of someone's mind. It didn't, it didn't start as Traveler and then make its way into being Starfleet. Mm-hmm. On the game designing end of it, what you hear a lot about is somebody creating a 400 to 900 page rule book and then putting tens of thousands of dollars into a print run that never sits anywhere except for the garage. That's absolutely another thing. That's actually why they're called heartbreakers. Yeah, because it's heartbreaking. That people actually thought that they could get into the publishing industry with via their slim volume of similar to D&D-style text. <laughs> we actually recently did one that was a local famous story. Yeah, the Fantasy Imperium was definitely a local guy who wanted to be a writer, not even an RPG writer, just wanted to be a writer, and so went into making an RPG because it was basically the easiest way he could find to get a book published. And it's got all the earmarks of a local, friendly, personal project. Like, it's his wife on the cover, and (laughs) a lot of the the art inside is based on pictures of his friends. And uh, when it it failed, which of course it did because it's it's an unplayable D&D version or clone, he just started handing them out locally because he was another San Diego guy. So he would go... He would go to cons and just give this book away to people if they came up and mentioned that they knew what the book was. That's fascinating. Is he? Does he still? Do, does he? Is he still trying to be an author? Or yeah, he oh, has yeah. written a couple books. He's in L.A. now, but it's absolutely amazing that if you look at it, you can also tell uh, a lot of the things that went into it. Not only were other RPGs he had looked at, but huge into books on how to be a better author <laughs> because all of the tips on how to create a protagonist are essentially rules for how to make your character. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, so that's not, that's uh, one of our favorite examples of, of the kind of financial end of Heartbreakers because he, he definitely failed at that. He did manage to move on and get himself a, a, a writing career, not in RPGs, which honestly, that's probably a major step up for any publisher. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> So, so yeah, uh, it's it's got to be, I guess, both of those things. And that's that's fascinating to me, at least that story, because I don't hear about many uh, Heartbreaker creators uh, not really understanding, like, games at all. Because, at least in that story, it, it sounds like uh, he's trying to get people to design characters to act like protagonists would in a story, which anybody who's played a role-playing game knows it is really, really difficult to corral people in that direction. Uh, parties almost exist to subvert narrative convention. It's absolutely true, and you could tell he had no idea that that was going to happen in his game. You know how every RPG you've ever read has that three or four page section at the beginning that's apparently aimed at a person who picked it up and bought it. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, 
even if it's something extremely obscure, you've never heard of it, they think, oh, this might be the first RPG anyone picked up, so we need to have a three-page section called, What is an RPG? <laughs> well, his his read, like, the notes for, for uh, first years at, like, Second City Improv. Oh, that's amazing. And his system also reflects it. There's an entire spell casting system to it, but the spells don't have any sort of codified effect. They just go... Hey, maybe you turn a guy into a werewolf. I don't know. You figure it out. Yeah. None of the spells do anything with a number in them. Uh, yeah. The, and, the vagary, actually, I, I, I remembering like all of the different casting systems that you guys go over, the vagary in these uh, systems is one of my favorite things in the world. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it, it's because they, they want to move past the fancy in casting. Mm-hmm. And the first thought, usually when people think, okay, I'm going to move past fancy in casting, they either go one of two directions. One of them is... I'm going to go Final Fantasy, and I'm going to introduce spell points. Or they go, I'm going to go kind of shadow run with a little twist of my own and make it so that you build your own spells. You pull pieces from a couple different categories and say, all right, it creates a sphere. A sphere of what? Of water. And what does that do? It um, heals. That sort of thing. Which is, you know, it works when you're playing something like Magicka, but but it's not the most amazing thing in an RPG because it takes forever. Right, right. Yeah, there, there's a lot of intense focus, I think, on a lot of rule systems of people who are, you know, it's just their first work out of the gate. Everybody has mm-hmm. to get through putting out some lackluster stuff. And the the first thing you notice is intense focus on some areas of the game and no attention paid to others, no matter how important they may be. Well, it's kind of fun to notice how many of these old, especially the older fantasy heartbreakers, how many of them just take the first edition list of weapons from D&D and just print it. Oh, a Beck de Corban and a Glaive Guizarm and a Lucerne Hammer. What a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that that's that's fantastic. I was going to say, by the same token, they always there's a few things that they always pick that they hate about D&D. None of them like the alignment system. Yeah, there's always that. There's no true neutral. What What are you trying to sell me here, D and D? Yeah, uh, most of them don't like the way that gods work. Yeah, there's always either a super hyper focus on okay, gods exist, so obviously you have to really interact with them a lot, and prayer's a big thing. And then for some reason, they also mention atheism. Yeah, they always put atheism in. It's the weirdest thing in in a game where gods. Literally come down and tell you, hi, I'm God, and watch as I do cool miracles. You're like, well, I don't know. Um, I'm hedging my bets on this one. You know, as much as I want to agree with you, I have seen too many people try and play atheist characters in Dungeons & Dragons in a world where good and evil are quantifiable and measurable by very repeatable methods and the fact that gods give people superpowers. I, I love anybody who has the audacity to go, no. No, I don't believe that's coming. That's just you. Like if you're if you're in Discworld and you're doing some Terry Pratchett stuff and you're the atheist in a world of gods because you're doing it for comedy, sure. Mm-hmm. I, but when you're serious face trying to say, "Oh yeah, no, I don't really believe in all that god mumbo jumbo," you're like, "But, but the guy next to you is a cleric. I don't. What have you?" See, my favorite thing to think is that most of the folks who are writing these heartbreakers are, like, college age or slightly thereafter, so they're probably just hitting that same period we all do where atheism becomes a big deal to us. Mm. And and so they need to put it in their game so that they can get their cred for it, even though it doesn't make sense in the game. That I really enjoy. <laughs> where it's just like, here's a paragraph on atheism. What is it? It's important, man. 
Anyway, here's what the gods' names are. Yeah. And you bring up an interesting point. There is a lot of that youthful energy that is deconstructing sort of accepted facts of the world. Uh, one of my favorite things to think about, like in storytelling generally and especially constructing a game is when I was in seventh grade, we had to write a fantasy story that followed the, you know, heroic cycle. And mm. about half the class went, well, I'm going to write a story where the hero loses because that never happens. And everybody writes that. And they're all terrible stories because it's pointless to read something about somebody who failed in a not interesting way. Uh, yeah, that's... I love I love it watching people, especially in like game design, take and question very elemental things about different games and going, no, this can't work. Let's take this out and throw something in. It's all very rebellious against us, I guess, the man, which is D&D. Which is really the the center of any heartbreaker is someone looking at a game and saying, this isn't enough. There needs to be something different. There needs to be something else. And I feel like that comes from a need to change what was already established, even if it worked because you think it should be different. Yeah. It doesn't really matter if the mechanics are correct as much as wanting the mechanics to be a reflection of what you think the world should be. Yeah. And uh, so you'd see something like the, okay, you've got the weapon breakage or armor breakage because the person looking at it goes, oh, well, you know, I've done some various SDA stuff and I know that if someone hits me with a sword, that's not just going to be undamaged, so we should have rules for that. Which is fine <laughs> to me because that always makes the game worse. It makes it slower. And also, the, sooner, the, the moment you start tracking armor, the characters that don't wear armor just got better again. Oh, so yeah, that's that's a really good point because you there's a whole bunch of bookkeeping that you don't have to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's really not even just the people who don't wear armor. It's really any magic user in your game gets better because the people who are doing the heartbreakers go, oh, well, I can quantify how heavy armor is and how fast you can swing a sword and how fast you can reload a crossbow. But magic is magic, and so I'm just going to let a wizard do whatever he wants. There's never been a, a, a PBS special about how magic worked in the medieval times. <laughs> Which is so. really unfortunate. Uh, they've <laughs> been dragging their feet on that. Yeah, that really does need to come out. Come on, man. You've given us ancient aliens. Where is my how magic worked? <laughs> Was Merlin real? Did he assassinate Lincoln? <laughs> uh, these are the questions that I need answers to. Uh, well, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Go, my- go ahead. One of my personal favorite things, have you ever heard the phrase catching the mouse? I have not. Catching the mouse, okay, have you ever heard of Jason Bullman? He's the lead designer at Paizo. Okay, yeah. Okay, so Jason Bullman put out a, I don't remember if it was on Facebook or Twitter, but it doesn't matter. He put out on social media sometime a apropos of nothing thing that said, I just spent most of my afternoon tying a, a computer mouse to my wrist and trying to whip it into my hand. It's harder than I thought. It's definitely not a free action, and it's probably not a swift action. And then uh, someone else asked, oh, are you thinking about getting rid of weapon cords in Pathfinder? And he said, yes, and I've already updated that in an FAQ, and there's a list that says that getting anything back into your hand is a move action. Now, this became a a joke about called catching the mouse, because what he just did was he said, okay, I'm going to define what people can do in my game by what I can do. Right, right. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'm an RPG designer. I... I, uh, I probably look like most RPG players. 
And uh, what's what's my capability? Can I get can I whip something into my hand? Uh, no. Well, then clearly a masterful fighter couldn't either. Yeah. What you don't know about his commute is that he has to swing a mouse at a stream of orcs <laughs> every day in order to get to his desk. So he's actually quite good at it. Oh yeah, he's one of those kind of one of those grappling hook games on your iPad. That's that's his, <laughs> that's his commute to work every day. Nothing in his neighborhood but spikes on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And of course he spikes. will explode if he touches those oh, spikes. Yeah, even once. He's he's playing under Mega Man rules. Don't make light of his allergy, okay? <laughs> That's a, Mega Man's just allergic to spikes? Yeah, don't yes. spike shape. That changes my whole worldview of those games. <laughs> yeah, we're w- actually watching severely disabled people, not technically <laughs> skilled people. Uh, uh, that And it comes up in other things like, uh, so Cinnabar famously mm. has incredibly bad but also the designer there's so many little sidebars of oh this guy's ridden a horse and shot a bow and knows martial arts so he knows how to make a game that will actually play like real life i own not less than three gladiuses yeah so you look at that and you go stop stop trying to apply your life to what an imaginary character can do Could you imagine if any other form of media did that like movies that were based on how good a producer can swing a sword <laughs> <laughs> You know what? A lot of movies and television are made based solely on what the producer thinks is practical or good storytelling. So we're not that far off. Yeah. Uh, One thing that I noticed is sort of an interesting meme that cropped up in a lot of the Heartbreakers uh, that you guys reviewed is that uh, religion played a very interesting element. It was either uh, an author who was clearly rejecting religion or imposing a familiar Christian structure to religions uh, in their world. That is definitely true. Uh, you see a, a lot of the games, especially for me, I noticed this primarily in the fantasy heartbreakers. They'll they'll intru- instantly introduce a bunch of cross-wearing guys. Normally, they aren't worship- worshiping Jesus. They worship someone like Yveza or something, something similar. <laughs> or in the in the sci- the uh, post-apocalyptic games. Mm-hmm. Anything that's near post-apocalyptic, the very first thing that happens is that the Knights Templar crawl out of the woodwork and get right back to what they were doing before. <laughs> yeah, and then you'll have the other side of it being where you'll have just a, no gods, there's no gods or kings, only men, and that everything is based on your personal willpower or what have you, and those ones tend to be weird to me because they also have magic systems. And so they're like, well, obviously religion is just some hokey crap. Magic, though, <laughs> that's a science. Yeah, absolutely. Have you ever seen close-up magic? It's pretty amazing. And it, it, it's definitely David Blade real. straight up blew my mind. We have magic in this game. <laughs> that, guy can, that guy can levitate. I'm not even joking. <laughs> He's got a yeah, DVD he could sell you that could teach you. There's kind of a religious angle that it's it's like another uh, another facet by which they deliver their own personal experience into the game, and you can see it. They say, well, what do I know about gods and religion? Uh, well, Sunday school, so let's cram that in there. Uh, I've read Of Gods and Demons or whatever that book was called, uh, at the uh, the Tom Hanks movie, that thing. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, let's cram some of that in there. There's an Illuminati. Let's do that. Uh, instead of doing the whole D&D thing, which, well, I mean, honestly, no one's going to be able to do, re- replicate the D&D god system because it's all based on people's characters from before D&D was published. 
But you also kind of get in other heartbreakers as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> where people are like, and here's my god, and it's obviously just based off of my girlfriend's character. Well, we definitely, with Cinnabar, we definitely talked about how uh, Aridius, the god of hope and command, is really just Jesus. Oh, it's straight up space Jesus. It's it's very, he does everything Jesus does, he just does it over longer periods of time, and a lot more, like, intonations of thunder and lightning. Yeah, and I mean, just like turning water into wine, he turned Mars into a spaceship. It's pretty much the <laughs> yeah. same thing. They, yeah. they, they're very analogous. Uh, what what yeah. I like about that, especially, th- this is, like, completely outside the discussion of Heartbreakers and everything, is just, when you consider the satanic panic uh, that like struck Dungeons and Dragons. We have so many people who are trying to make Dungeons and Dragons more religious in their private time. Oh, the satanic panic was so interesting. I, one of our very good friends is a, uh, a Catholic priest mm-hmm. who's a, a regular D and D player. And, and every once in a while when he, when, when he'll hang out with us and play D and D people will ask him about that. And he'll say, look, it's not the eighties. The satanic panic had a clear beginning, middle, and end. It's over, and yes, it's just the, the Catholic religion is very slow to uncondemn things. <laughs> but, but he tells me that every priest he knows is an avid D&D player. That is fascinating. Right? Yeah. Uh, Sam, so, my, one of my friends and a frequent contributor to our show, is uh, actually training to be a rabbi right now. Uh, I wonder if there's just nothing else to do. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's like being on a ship when you're in the exactly. Navy. No one plays more D&D than the Navy. Or being in the core of Mars when you're jettisoning through space. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I want to sort of talk about uh, how Heartbreakers are evolving. Um, because oh, yeah. originally the publishing industry was structured much, much differently. Uh, so mm-hmm. let's talk about the sort of classical, like what, what, what happened? When did they start coming about? You know, I don't really know when the first Heartbreakers were hitting the scene. I, I, I want to say... That they're older than you think, and that and that a lot of games that that you've read and enjoyed from like the, the mid '80s and so on are are heartbreakers of some capacity. Um, but I mean, even D and D itself was just coming out of the minis game, and so you could almost look at D and D as a heartbreaker. They took a game they already enjoyed, codified it differently, made gods that were based on their characters, and it's <laughs> sort of its own version of its own heartbreaker. Oh, yeah. Some of, the, some of the decisions that led to what D&D is are amazing. Like, oh. clerics are only in the game because they needed a good equivalent to vampires. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's fascinating, uh, the design choices that went into Dungeons & Dragons. Please. I was say, I'd say the earliest one that we have read was probably Dark Earth Legends, and that was, I want to say, in the early 90s. Yeah, it was about 91, 92. Yeah. Oh, wow, fascinating. So so most of your Heartbreaker games aren't breaking past the, the early 90s. That's... So far. Uh, you know, we, we uh, review what we can find. So <laughs> oh, that's... when people want to send us older stuff, we'll take it. I think we actually have uh, the... TSR Buck Rogers box set coming up in the near future, so oh, that's fun. that's going to be another one of the super old games for us. Oh, that's that's really cool. Uh, yeah, so I yeah. guess I guess we're looking at an area in the '90s where it was a lot easier to publish things, and having that sort of low bar for publication sort of propels somebody into thinking that no, my crazy project is actually worth something. Well, it also made it easier to get a book published, but it's also around the time where someone growing up playing with it so had enough time with a game system to decide they wanted to make a system, and you had to get 
past that satanic panic that we were talking about mm. to the point where you could bring this to a publisher and say, I want to make an RPG, and they didn't go, we don't want to be associated with that. <laughs> yeah. I think the modern model is is so different because you don't need to get past a publisher. I mean, I've been watching the evolution of Sacred Barbecue into Strike, and it's it's been really neat. I mean, that's that's going to be what the new Heartbreaker is. It, it's going to be PDFs that people share on the internet that eventually get sold as as really well done with high high value art PDFs. Yeah, that, well, so let, let's what, let's talk about it because sharing on the internet is, I mean. You can put anything out there, and indeed, many people do put anything out there. As a person who has made it a mission to play you know, every game worth its salt, I have read a lot of games that needed some, some work or needed to be torn down and rebuilt from the ground up. And the market, I think, really, where you put, uh, when you put your money where your mouth is and when it really becomes a heartbreaker is when you go to Kickstarter with it. Mm -hmm. I think one of the big differences between old Heartbreakers and what's going to eventually replace them is that you no longer see a game that's based on one person's individual crazy vision. Uh, nowadays, when someone's working on something like a Fate game, mm -hmm. that's, crowd, that's crowdsourced. They're, they're sharing it on whatever social media platform they happen to be on. They're putting it on forums. They're asking questions. They're saying, all right, guys, 4th edition D&D was bad for X reason and good for X reason. How do we keep the good and then replace the bad with more good? Or uh, you know, fifth edition D and D is a little too simple. How can we add things that we're that we're, we are still missing from playing in other editions? And and so nowadays the new uh, the model, I don't think they're going to be heartbreakers anymore because they're going to be free. Mm -hmm. But but also because you don't have that. I think a big part of a heartbreaker is you can really see that person's original driving passion of what, why they wanted to write a game so bad. I mean, you read Cinnabar and and, and uh, uh, I believe his name is McCracken yeah. comes yep. across from from start to finish. I mean, by the end of that book, you know that guy. And you know another really good one would be a Haven, City of Violence. That's correct. <laughs> which which is written by a fellow named Lewis Porter Jr. and he pours himself onto the page. Like you can you can feel uh, his interest in wearing black hoodies that say Pantera on them by the end of that book. <laughs> <laughs> and you also get more of a. Uh, crowd-sourced version of your rules. Before, when you look at any of these Heartbreakers, they have a section in the beginning for, here was our playtesters, and it is maybe at most 20 to 30 people. Nowadays, you can have thousands of people online running the game, constantly telling you, all right, we were doing this, we noticed this problem. We used this spell, it caused this problem when you used it in conjunction with this other spell. And now you can get feedback from people so much more quickly and in such a broader aspect than you could before, where a couple groups running your game might never have even played a couple of the classes to a certain area. Now you're going to see everything tested. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's interesting. And that is definitely a known problem with game design is... Uh, listening too intently to your playtesters or, you know, losing track of what the game is actually supposed to be about because you're busy spot fixing all the rules. Yeah, well, that's also another thing. You see, anytime I've been on any forum where they're talking about any specific game at all, someone will go, you know, uh, I like this system, but I think this. And someone else will say, well, that idea would be terrible but I also don't like that system. It should be like this other version. <laughs> and if you're the one designing the game and you're trying to please everyone, you end up with D&D &D 5th Edition. <laughs> <laughs> 
which, uh, to its credit, is not doing very badly. I was going to say, we don't need to put our hearts on our sleeves here. But, uh, <laughs> but no, uh, I mean, we, we think it, is, it does seem to be doing fairly well. It's, it's, uh, it's definitely shown over the long run that it's easy to modify into what you want. You're going to have a hard time selling me or John on it because I'd, I'd say that, I mean, just saying the word warlord makes us high five. <laughs> Well, that's, I want to shout someone's hand back on. That's yeah. all I want. <laughs> I'm not going to spend any of my time trying to convince you to buy any particular game because I'm oh, not no. being paid for it. I want to move my attention to games that are open source. And what I sort of see developing out of that is now it's really easy to sell your not very well thought out game because you can attach your game's name to something like Fate or apocalypse the uh, the whole core mechanic of fate has been really interesting you get all these dungeon core and and apocalypse core games that uh you know someone someone wrote a a fairly solid engine and then they just put it out in the world and now we have all these people making all kinds of amazing games with them so yeah i'm I'm a fan of what's uh, coming out of that and then all kinds of less than amazing games Fair enough. I mean, granted, so you you have to have someone making the brony version of 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 Fate Core, but you know, you're gonna take the good with the bad. Yeah, well, absolutely, absolutely, and it's uh, I I think it's definitely a revolution in like how you build the game because I've noticed a lot of the people who would have sort of been getting caught up in trying to make their own rule system can now impose their pretty good ideas on an existing rule system that works pretty well. And if they want to sub in one or two mechanics, it's not going to be a big problem. Uh, it reminds me of that uh, game that you guys talked about uh, where everybody is a different psychological defect as a class. And oh, man, that game was great. Yeah, bananas world bananas ideas and if it was in imposed in a functional role-playing system it might not even be that bad yeah there's a uh trend as well among most uh the like message boards things like that where people will just say hey i'm trying to make a game i've got this and this idea and the immediate reaction for most people is well why aren't you just doing that in fate yeah (laughs) and and I think that's another big aspect of what you're going to see in the difference between the modern equivalent of a heartbreak. I don't want to call them heartbreakers because I've got a lot of hope for what they are and the old ones, which is that the new systems are built on reducing complexity instead of fixing a perceived lack of complexity. So a, a modern game will just have such simple rules for, you know, roll to hit and then roll how much damage you do. And you don't need to worry about things like whose initiative step it is and what the weapon speed of a dagger is and how many rounds it's been since you reloaded that crossbow because for most people, that's not the game they want to play. They want to play a game of cool, heroic action, and for the people who that's for whom that's not the case, well, there's 30 years of, of uh, role-playing games that are perfect for them already. Well, yeah. Which is well, the interesting thing, that you have these uh, old games that are still there for anyone that wants them. If I want to go back and play an old Super Nintendo game, and I don't have a Super Nintendo, trying to find the system and the game and get it to work on my TV is just going to be a nightmare, Whereas if I want to go ba- back and play original Redbox D&D, I can go do that, and I can just download a PDF of it right now. Oh, that's true. That's absolutely true. Uh, and I think, actually, what interests me about this sort of dichotomy of design philosophy is D&D and role-playing in general used to be the domain of math people. 
And now we have sort of theater people and writing people breaking into it uh, with more steam, which is why I think you have the glut of system light uh, rules light games that are hitting the market and uh, being very successful, whether or not they're all together. Well, it also makes it easier to get someone who hasn't played in. Mm. If I drop down a game like Phoenix Command in front of someone who has never seen a role-playing game, and I show them 10 million charts, they're going to go, no, that's all right, we'll do something else. (laughs) But if I tell them, okay, we're going to play in this game, just make a character, whatever sounds cool, come up with a few personality traits, and you've got maybe even just four stats rated 1, 0, or minus 1, go to town. Now you don't have to worry about, I I need to be a math major to figure out if my character works. Now you can just go, oh, I want to play a game. I'm playing a game now. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things where it's about time role-playing games caught up. If you think about it, Magic the Gathering, for example, has a whole wing of people whose job it is to make sure that anyone can pick up Magic the Gathering at Target and learn to play it that day. <laughs> If they don't have those people, then the game becomes as runaway complex as a game that has 25,000 individual cards in it should be. But they've spent a ton of money and a ton of time on making sure that the game is always pick up and play. And, you know, it's about time that RPGs start making that that change. The, the problem, what's been holding them back, is that there are a lot of players who who uh, like that concept. Heck, that's what, our po- that's what our podcast is named after. <laughs> Getting that system mastery in your system of feeling good about knowing all of the weird quirks and what's a trap and what actually is really good. And there is a level of satisfaction to having system mastery. Oh, yeah, you get a real endorphin rush when you build a D&D character and you're like, yeah, this guy's perfect. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's because you feel like an actual goddamn wizard. You've read Mm -hmm. 50 books of forbidden lore and gotten unspeakably evil powers from them. Yeah, you play a game and you've decided, I know how to fudge my numbers and put different feats in different areas, and I've made an amazing character. And that just, that hits that pleasure button for certain nerds. Yeah, if you've got that that uh, condition, may I recommend playing Exalted, where they, they use build points and XP as separate resources. So when you build your your character correctly for the first time, and building your character correctly means designing a character that is clearly autistic, like like Rain Man good at one thing and terrible at everything else, then uh, you're like, yeah, I built this character right. I saved myself 75 XP down the line. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, yeah, we've had a lot of requests for games like that on on my show, and because I have to learn and, you know, be ready to run a game in about a week, I I haven't run them yet because people are going to be very disappointed (laughs) at what I can do with them. We get that request fairly regularly too. We get we get people who call in, or write in and ask us if we'll uh, run a, a a session, you know, play Starfleet Master or uh, Starfleet Battles for for an episode. And we have to be like, no, because you know we read the books and do our best to blank them from our memory shortly thereafter, mostly so they don't poison our next podcast. And so uh, you can but, fit more information in those brains of yours. Yeah, but also we don't do it because I'm not going to inflict Starfleet on three other people. I, I don't even know where I would find them. <laughs> oh. so so yeah uh we we get that request from time to time our we've we've built our market around the notion that we don't play uh, we don't uh 
cover a campaign or we're not playing around here, okay? This is advanced. This is this is serious role podcasting. But but uh, that we don't have a, a game table that we discuss. We 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 I mean we both are avid role players. We have some games going. We just we just don't keep a podcast mic at the table. Um yeah. No, of course. because uh, you have to leave that to people like me who are professional boneheads who uh... Exactly. <laughs> Hey, I love that show. It's absolutely true. Um, we just, I, I, honestly, I don't think I have enough friends that I could get to do that. <laughs> Plus, we'd have to crowd around this mic even more. Yeah. Besides, if you're roping people in to play a four-hour game, uh, the the request that I send to different people who are not normally role players to be on my show is incredibly audacious. Because I'm always like, oh yeah, if I could just have five or six hours of your time, that would be great. Yeah, and you're going to need to learn a system. So honestly, while I'm asking for six hours of your time, what I'm really asking for is like three of your nights before that as well, painstakingly reading your way through Cinnabar or something. <laughs> I'd love to do that to somebody, though. Uh, maybe I'll have to pick one of those great games and uh, just run with it. We have had a discussion about maybe doing that as a one-off, about doing a game and then and then running a couple sessions in it. It would have to be something just monstrous, because... That would be where we derive the humor. One of the games that we've done that's just unplayable from start to finish. If you if you guys want a volunteer victim, I would definitely sign up for that. I love playing obscure bullshit. Oh, good, we've got one then. We're, we'll we'll, look, we'll uh, let you know when we get that put together. All right, um, uh, let's let's talk to uh, the game designers in our audience because I do have uh, you know fairly decent following of people who are trying their hand at design uh, maybe they don't want to be professionals but they do want to make some games and uh, get them published so how can we tell if we are designing a heartbreaker how long is your skill system does your skill system have 70 different skills and it weights the ability to swing a sword as much as the ability to basket weave perhaps <laughs> look at your skill system that's definitely true if you've got something that's overly granular, maybe consider scaling it back. But then again, uh, who are we to say this? I mean, all we're doing really is telling you what our preferences are. Um, so how to tell if you're writing a heartbreaker. Uh, can you tell when, when your friends get the book, can you tell, can they tell that this is clearly some game that they've all played already? Now remember, we've actually received a heartbreaker once. Someone gave us his very own heartbreaker. Yeah, I oh. had uh, someone give me his rough draft of an RPG, wanted us to review it on the podcast, which did not do. <laughs> we're, we're, we're nice people. It would have been like our fifth or sixth episode if we had done it, and I, I feel like at that point we didn't have the nuance down, that we would have just ripped into him and it would have been terrible. But it was it was a and d game. Yeah. Uh, it was D&D, except he had done what most heartbreakers do. He wrote human, dwarf, elf, and then, like most people who like verisimilitude, he thought that gnomes and halflings are stupid, so he mm -hmm. quietly excised them and replaced them with the way cooler races of Dogman, Catman, and Dragonman. Which... Oh, yeah, let's let's investigate this, because I think this is an important point, especially for anybody's design, um, is thinking about uh, what's been done before and what you're doing differently. Um, Absolutely. We have, because there are plenty of games that are essentially D&D &D clones that have done quite well for themselves and continue to do well. Uh, games mm -hmm. that pop to mind are like Shadowrun or <laughs> Pathfinder, which is legit just a D&D &D clone. It's not even different. 
Uh, so how how can somebody, if they are setting out on their design journey, uh, going, okay, am I cloning a game? What are some signs? Well, uh, let's see. I'd say you should really write what the goal of the people sitting at the table is. I mean, one of the core elements of what makes D&D D&D is that it's, at its heart, a murder hobo game. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, play, you're playing as four or five people who go into pits and fight monsters and come out with treasure. And a lot of people, when they sit down to write a role-playing game, don't like that aspect of what D&D is, and they want to fix it. But then they still write the same rules. And you can't just try and slap some extra social ability on there and be like, I'm going to expand out the diplomacy skill to be something else, but still keep the entire game exactly the same. You really need to decide, is this a game about diplomacy? Is this a social game? Is this a talking game rather than an action game? Then you can design your system around that. If your system is designed to just be a bunch of murder hobos going around getting treasure, then having a system based around combat entirely where you have a few side rules for niche areas where you're talking to someone is fine because that's the person that wants to play your game. And, and I know this is going to sound like a personal note, but, but if your game is getting unnecessarily granular, if you're adding things like extremely advanced weapon speeds or extremely complicated armor uh, durability charts or, even worse, the uh, ability to wear armor over long periods of time such that your party will eventually have to take their armor off and that's when you ambush them, ask yourself why you're adding those rules. Is it because you think that the game world wasn't uh, serious enough before and was the seriousness something that you were missing? Did, Did you need that? Was it? I mean, if you can get your game to work without it, uh, you know, people have a, a happy time playing a game that's a little more like Princess Bride than they do playing a game that's a little more like the PBS description of how, uh, you know, the Battle of 1066 went. <laughs> yes, many people died and you were probably one of them. I, I think that's great advice. Uh, the first thing I say to any designer who wants advice about how to design a role playing system is make something that you can explain in three sentences or less. Oh, that's very uh, good. Yeah. And you want to? Uh, we, oh yeah, go go ahead. Oh, we both like. I, I, at least I definitely like that. I like the idea of doing three sentences or less. Yeah, if you can give someone an elevator pitch of your game, then that's great. Because if you have to start telling them subsystems in order for them to comprehend what your game is, then it's gotten a little out of hand. And I think the thing that separates an uninspired D and D clone from a successful D and D clone is your pitch is it's D&D but and your but is very clear reason uh, if yeah. we look to something like Dungeon World it's D&D but the mechanics are all focused on narrative decisions rather than mechanical decisions uh, yeah that, and if you look at a bad one like a Dark Earth then you get like it's D&D but the races are all pretty much tied to one castle and they would never hang out with each other <laughs> right so, so so yeah, it focus on and and that it's not just a sales pitch. Uh, having being able to explain your game in three sentences, uh, it does wonders for your sales pitch because somebody is actually going to listen to you for three sentences uh, and probably not ten hours of shouting madly in the streets. But uh, it helps you understand exactly what you're trying to do with your game. Yeah, and with that, I would say. Know who you are writing for. Mm. When you are writing a game and you go, all right, what type of player do I want? 
Because if you are writing it for this is just something I think me and my friends would enjoy playing, you're making a homebrew, you're not making an RPG. Mm -hmm. If you're making an RPG, you're going, do I want someone who's into story gaming? Do I want someone who loves getting into the nitty-gritty of system mastery and feats and charts? Am I trying to get someone who is more casual but still has a focus on the mechanics? Do something where you know the type of player rather than just something that you like. Plus, never write one that where your goal is all those players. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we could name some games. Oh, yeah, no, exactly. Uh, you want to have a clear idea of what your market is because you're not Wizards of the Coast. Wizards of the Coast can design Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition because they literally have millions of dollars to spend on market research uh, where they can try and capture all of those players. They also have the branding where everybody who is interested in role-playing games has probably already played one of their products. And it, you're going to get people that don't play D&D buying your book because it's the new D&D book. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, They've got that going for them. Where where he's with us, we buy the games because they are three dollars. Yeah, yeah. And, That's why we bought Nexus. <laughs> <laughs> well, but uh, you know, we're not a very good market. If you don't build your game for for a podcast that doesn't like it, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Everybody, I encourage you, designers out there, please design them games for them to hate because I want to continue listening to their I, show. I was going to say we're, we might be the worst people ever to ask how to design a good game because we don't want anyone to. <laughs> uh, our, our number one goal is for our stream of, of uh, vitriol to never really have to end. Yeah, so if you can just design a game with dumb, inexplicable names for things oh, yeah. that shouldn't be there, if you can name your fighter uh, Durfanther, then great. That'll be wonderful. I'll love everything about it. <laughs> Actually, that, that, that touches on a piece of advice that I'd like to throw to everybody. Um, one of the most important things for you, if you are growing up in today's design community, is to get other people see to see your work and it's not like there is the danger of you getting lost in that as we mentioned earlier talking about it but if you don't have if your ideas are just in a vacuum you will turn out like a lot of the maddeningly crazy games that they review on their show uh, because it's just your ideas in an echo chamber and if you're really into charts you're going to end up with a lot of crazy charts uh, yeah. And, and, you know, keep bell curves in mind. It's it's helpful to just have a simple bell curve where you have an idea of what how often you want your players to succeed and how easily they can succeed based on the bell curve that you've thrown into the game. One of the games that I always call out when people ask me about unnecessarily complicated games that we've reviewed is uh, it, it's called Don't Look Back. Terror is Never Far Behind. And it's supposed to be... It's I'd say if it was a heartbreaker, it'd be a Call of Cthulhu heartbreaker because mm -hmm. it's supposed to be a, a horror movie simulator. Except that... Anytime you want to roll di uh, a, a, a challenge, what you do is you roll a number of dice equivalent to your skill and then take the absolute value of the, of the number of dice that you rolled and then, and, and then you uh, compare that against a chart and then you reapply your original modifier if it was positive or negative. And, and it, the whole thing so far removes you from the game that it, it, you, you might as well be playing a board game. Yeah. And for a horror simulator, oh, yeah. you shouldn't be being taken out of the game at all. That's absolutely true. I'll say uh, something that might lend a little bit of hope uh, to people who want to get into design. Uh, we're going to soon feature on the show a game by Keith Baker, who you'll all know from Eberron. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And he recently sent us an email that he changed one of the mechanics in the game uh, because to get damage, you had to reach a certain number and then divide that number by a different number. And he's <laughs> like, what I found through the playtesting is people are confused by division. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I was when I was writing up my my description stuff notes for uh, don't look back, I had to remember where on my keyboard the the straight up and down bar that denotes absolute value is. <laughs> why am I looking this up? What game would need absolute value as part of its charts? Well, given the amount of confusion people get over plus and minus yes. ones and twos in games, when you start adding in like, oh, you need to divide this or multiply whatever, you're like, oh, don't do it. Make make sure your game can be played by a second grader. Yeah, that's... if I if I were to call out a, a recent game that has a very good engine that's it's simple and easy to play, I would go with uh, War Machine. Uh, what's called Full Metal Tactics or something. But they're they're uh, I know that they're also a tabletop war game, but their role playing game has an extremely simple system. You roll two d six, you add some modifiers, you compare it against a chart and or a a, a difficulty, and that's what it is for every single roll you'll ever make. Yeah, I, I like that. It's 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 easy to keep that in your mind. It's easy to teach anyone to play it. Yeah, actually, I mean, one of the things I do like about uh, Dungeons and Dragons Fifth Edition is with their advantage and disadvantage system. You either have advantage or have disadvantage. If you have both, you have nothing. Uh, really elegant. You don't have to keep track of five things because as soon as there are two things, there are no things. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I, that was definitely one of the biggest weaknesses to fourth edition was that you ended up with with so many little markers next to your character that indicated that at the moment he is flanked and stunned and dazed, but he is hasted, but he is paralyzed, and and, and it was a little it was a little confusing, and you'd easily lose track of, especially when you start getting into players handing other players bonuses, it was impossible to remember all of them at any given time. So yeah, I I, I like it when it, when a game simplifies, and you know if there's nothing wrong with writing a complicated game, but I would always urge play, or writers to write a simple game first. Come up with the basics of your mechanics. How do you hit someone? How much damage do you do? How much life does that player have? Then go in and add all that crunch that you want. To, to use it like salt and pepper. Add it to taste. That, and I think that is perfect because you don't want you don't want character creation to be an exorbitantly difficult process. You should have the option of going deep if you want to go deep. But if you don't, you should be able to get through it in... Uh, you know what? I, I won't be too harsh. Two hours is, I think, <laughs> low for the really, really thick systems. Uh, you should be able to do it in an amount of time that's not going to kill several days. Now, one of the things about the old Heartbreakers I'll notice is that they all use almost roll 3d6, like close to it. <laughs> Usually it's like roll 2d6 and add five or roll 66 and divide by two. And then, once they're done with that, because all Heartbreakers are under the impression that you absolutely have to roll for your stats. If there's not some element of randomness, then you're not really playing a, port, a, a role-playing mm. game. But what they do, and, and this is something that D&D has been doing over the past couple of years as well, is then they go ahead and validate the true, the true randomness of that roll by saying, well, you can't roll under an eight. And <laughs> it doesn't even matter what your stat is, because all you're really going to do is, is convert it to a uh, number that you derive from that. And so... If you have a 14, it's a plus 2, and if you have a 16, it's a plus 3. We'll, we'll take your really big differences, your variance between 3 and 18, and drop it to this little granular, smaller block. And, and uh, you know, if you're designing a new game, a, a great way to start your design is say, why do you need that that original set of numbers? Like, you know, your D&D character stats could just be plus 1, plus 2, 0, plus 1, and you would play exactly the same. So... 
simplify when you can. Another thing I want to touch on is something that uh, you guys mentioned earlier and pops up in a lot of your shows is changing the names of basic things that everybody already understands. Oh, yeah. John, in particular, absolutely despises that. And we did an early game called Sky Realms of Jorun. <laughs> oh, my God. That game actually made me physically angry at everything. I just shook making that podcast because you're taking a thing that everyone knows. All right, this guy is a rogue or a thief. And you're going to decide to give him some weird-sounding name for no reason. I believe it was Githerin. Yeah, you're a Githerin. <laughs> yeah. All right. Not only is that nothing, that's nothing. That means nothing to anyone, but it also just sounds like Gith Yankee, and now I'm thinking yeah. of a different race. And fighters oh. in that game were called Kondrich, and it didn't tell you how to how to pluralize that. And you know, also, Kondrich was a sword in that as well. Yeah. So it's it's this weird thing where where uh, they you can tell why they did it because that game is. Not quite a heartbreaker, but it does wear its heart on its sleeve because it's it's very clearly based on old sci-fi novels, mm-hmm. and it's trying to do that realism of well, if this took place uh, several thousand years into the future, language would have changed, and of course we'd have different names for things. And I go, well, yes, that that's lovely, but I need to read your book, yeah. so don't do that. I, well, that's you, that's exactly what I think. Uh, whenever I hear that creativity go into something, I think my first thought is that is lovely. But all all changing names like that can do. The one mechanical thing that it provides you is it makes it harder for people to understand your game. So yeah. by changing one of those names, you just straight up make it difficult for anybody to engage with your product. Have you ever read Nobilis? I have not had the pleasure. Oh my goodness. Nobilis gives you the correct name the first time, but everything in the book has seven AKAs. Everything. Every rule Every part of every rule has seven follow-up AKAs. So it'll say things like, uh, oh, uh, your character's alignment is this, and then one of the alignments is this. It is also known as the primrose alignment, or the shadow alignment of the stars, or... <laughs> and it just goes on like that. So most of the book is just AKAs, and it, you can't hold it in your head. It's impossible. How, how does that work in practice? Only because I think that's somebody trying to solve for the fact that when they're explaining rules, they're saying the same thing over and over again a lot, and it's hurting their writer brain. I think that in in, in uh, practice, that book was written by uh, by Doctor Rebecca Ramoran, and and that's just one of her personal uh, foibles is that she really likes flowery <laughs> uh, pr- uh, prosaic prose. And so she just couldn't help herself, and so she threw a lot of that in there. I, I've read maybe three books by her, and I'd be hard-pressed to tell you a rule from any of them. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. I always <laughs> thought Chris Claremont should write role-playing games anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, uh, I would say that if you can simplify your language down enough, you can have... Uh, moments where maybe it's from a character's perspective if you've got one of those like story bits in there or later on explaining something you can say in this region a fighter is known as but making a baseline level make it relatable to the people who are reading it because if you pick something up and you go 50% of the words you have just used to describe something are completely made up then I think you have just pulled this book out of your ass and I don't care anymore. Is this a Neil Stevenson novel? Where, <laughs> when do I roll these dice? 
that's that's uh, that's the effect you get when you read something like that. Uh, and I think actually there can be good reasons to change the name of things. Uh, for instance, mm-hmm. if your rogue-ish character is not exactly a rogue, and you need to make that distinction, uh, like changing rogue to scout because. This person could be in the military, so we normally think of rogues as people in the world who are outside the law and doing these sneaky things. But in this game, this imaginary game's instance, uh, the person who has skills that we normally associate with rogues is in a way different social strata than the traditional D&D rogue. So if you are going to change something, make it so that you are announcing to the people reading your book that this thing that has qualities of this other thing is not the same. Yeah, that's why the stupid names really bug me so much is because the naming convention for anything is so powerful if you use it correctly. You can convey so much, I mean, even just in D&D, the difference between a thief and a rogue is enough that you go, there's mm-hmm. a huge difference between these. And in a game, like you're saying, if you have a rogue or a scout, it evokes something different. If I have a fighter or a soldier, that's a different thing. I think the fact that fighters are called fighters is one of the great elements of original D&D design. It, it conveys what they are. They're guys who fight, and that's <laughs> it. I mean, think about it. Outside of D&D, no one is ever a fighter, except for, like, boxers. And that, that's it. No one, no one is a, a fighter. You don't, you don't talk about how the military is full of great fighters who, who are gun-using fighters. So <laughs> their, their decision to, to broaden that category so heavily so they could cover your knights and your warriors and your archers in, into one thing was brilliant. And, and so that if your game has broad categories, use them. I mean, probably don't use fighter because, again, it only exists in D&D and everyone will notice. But, uh, but, but come up with something close. Maybe, maybe use something like Warrior. Fighting Man. Yeah, yeah Fighting Man. <laughs> yeah, it only exists true. in really old D&D. <laughs> <laughs> Final Fantasy got away with it, I'm sure. I'm sure new did. designers can. Again, that first Final Fantasy is just D&D the game, so... <laughs> Something else that I want to talk about is uh, one of the things that I notice uh, that I enjoy most about the games that appear on your show is the worlds held within. And I think the only reason to read a lot of these books is to get at those crazy worlds because I can walk away from your show uh, knowing that I don't want to play a role-playing system, but I kind of want to grab some of the Coke-fueled elements that came out of it. Uh, I see a lot of games these days uh, made with no setting whatsoever, and it makes it so hard to engage with whatever content you've put in it. Yeah, I mean, we've already got things like Fate or any of the whatever world systems where if someone wants just a baseline mechanic, they can get that. What's going to hook someone in is going to be the world that you build, and if you're building a crazy world, you're going to at least make someone interested mm-hmm. in it. I get a lot of requests because uh, I run I run the uh, most of the back end of the website, so I get the emails. But I get a lot of emails asking us to cover GURPS because people think that GURPS has a lot of big crazy mistakes in it over the years. That there are a lot of crazy things you can do by just plugging different numbers into GURPS. And I always just say, well, no, because. GURPS doesn't have. I, I, in, do you want us to have a dry discussion about math for an hour? Because I don't want to. <laughs> I, I mean, the only thing we really talk about in GURPS is the historic nature of it, how it's it's been used for so many different things and, and all the other things that have flowed out from it. But ultimately, it's not a good game for 
just it wouldn't pass the three sentence rule. Or if it would, the three sentences would be you could make any other game with this and, what and use just, rules. And what you've just done with those with those sentences is describe any role playing ever. Oh, you can yeah. do anything you want. Congratulations, you've made a role playing game. Yeah. yeah, and the I mean you had brought up uh, Vanishing Point is the RPG where you all play as sort of weird psychological disorders and mm. everyone's got an odd dreamlike quality to it, and you have all of these fantastic elements to it, and that's the kind of game where even if the system is bad, you come away from it going like, oh, that was that was great. Oh, yeah, I want to set a Planescape world in that Vanishing Point planet so bad. <laughs> and even, that one didn't even have all that bad of rules. It just had weird idiosyncratic rules. Dude, I think we mentioned it during the podcast, but the, uh, the only die you roll in that game is a D8, and the reason that you roll a D8 is because D4s and D6s aren't random enough, and D10s aren't platonic solids. <laughs> that was his reason for going to the D8. It was like the nerdiest thing we'd ever read. It, it, and we've read 37 RPGs in the past year and a half. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that sort of thing reaches out and hooks you. Um, but yeah, Vanishing Point had a fantastic world. Uh, I want to say Deliria, our most recent podcast, Deliria, Potentially had a fairly interesting world. It just buried it under. It just went so far up its own ass. So that many you could not find what world was there. So many adjectives, just just so many adjectives. <laughs> um, but yeah, that it, well, it again goes back to the if you're writing something, use language people can understand. Mm-hmm. If you get into certain segments, you can write in a voice based on your game. Yeah. So, like, Deliria, 100%, the entire game, even explaining the mechanics, is done in a whimsical fairy-type voice. But you really need to convey how your game is going to be played without having to worry about, do I know what you're talking about? Yeah, if you look at some of the older White Wolf games, you'll see that their their charms, or whatever they called those in Vampire, uh, their powers, basically, are, the older ones tend to have rule sets that are or, or charms that are like, what does this do? Oh, well, it opens the sphere of the sky, and from the sky comes forth a hand, and the hand takes your hand, or do you take the hand from the sky? And you're like, what does this do? Just, what, what, what does it do? It heals How you three hit points. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, and I think the, the last note that I had um, before uh, we move on from this is... Uh, something that I noticed about a lot of things that you guys said earlier in this show uh, and uh, on your show is that people are usually trying to fix specific problems they have with other games when they make these heartbreaker systems that they pour so much time and effort into. Um, and I think great design philosophy advice is to not focus on fixing individual problems but rather building new things fixing problems is not a reason to build an entire game around it it's a reason to release an errata or make a homebrew rule and that's what everyone's already doing like i don't think there's a single game table in the world where someone is playing first or second edition dungeons and dragons straight out of the book (laughs) i don't believe that exists i i think that every single table has a house rule at least of some kind uh, one of the things I always think when, I, when I'm reading the old Heartbreakers is I notice things that they left in there that they clearly had no interest in, but they left them in because they're just basing it on some other game. So you, you look at some of the old Heartbreakers, you see that they all have the, oh, you, your character can level up, and they can level from 1 through 20, but it doesn't <laughs> matter in the game. Rift is a really good example of this. Gaining a level in Rift is nothing. You, you add 4% to a lot of your skills, and, and that's it. 
you gain, I think, a D6 of hit points, which don't even matter. <laughs> and and it's like, why is this in here? Oh, because you have to have levels in games. You you have to. They've been there forever. You can't get rid of them. Mm-hmm. They're, a sacred, they're a sacred cow. Well, that's not true. You could take those out. You could replace them with another method of advancement so that players feel like they have a reason to keep coming back. But levels don't need to be in your game. So they, they also end up putting, you know, they want to have that 15 or 20 level limit because of the way D&D was. So you'll see things like in Dark Earth, you go, all right, level one, you get this, and then nothing happens for four levels, but when you hit level five, you get a thing. You go, well, then why do you have those levels in there? Either <laughs> make it, if you want it to be a long period of time before I get whatever, just say it takes that long, but if I'm not getting anything at a level, then that level doesn't mean anything, and your abstraction is pointless. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's quite a bit of that out there. It's weird what people question when they design something and what they don't question or refuse to question. Well, that's one of my favorite things about reading Heartbreakers, is trying to figure out what they were doing recently that caused them to decide to write a new game. Like, uh, you see one where there's just a huge... The big one for me has always been crossbows. Because there's a lot of media out there about crossbows and how hard it is to shoot them and how, when they were invented and what type of armor they can penetrate and is it truly possible to train a normal peasant to fire one off a castle or, or, or a banister or whatever. And uh, so people will read that and they'll go, oh, I need to super complex up the rules about crossbows in the game I'm writing. No, you don't. <laughs> or, yes, I do, because... Because I read a, I read a uh, interesting article that said that they actually take a tremendous amount of pressure and you have to put your foot on them and it takes several minutes to load them. So, but it's neat to see that in the game and to see oh this guy recently watched PBS that's why he's so mad about how much armor weighs. <laughs> that or some guy like I just took an entire class on how to actually make leather items and so if oh, you yeah. have leather working. Let me tell you what goes into that. And so now, instead of it just being a role for crafting something, there's an entire, like, okay, you need to go get these items, you need to stretch this out for so long, and once you're done with that, and you're like, I don't care. If I wanted to know about how to actually make leather, I would read the book that you apparently did. <laughs> yeah. How many squirrel brains do you have on you? You're going to need those to tan that hide. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> I was going to say, we haven't talked about what we think is the core heartbreaker to end all their heartbreakers. Oh, yes, please. Absolutely. That would be, and we haven't read it, so we don't really have too much capacity to discuss it, but Fatal. Oh, yes. Fatal oh, represents, obviously. Fatal represents everything that, that is wrong with the concept of the heartbreaker. Anything, anything at all that you could assign a rule or a chart to, they did. The book is like 1,300 pages long, and I, I know it's famous for it's like how wide you can stretch an anus and so on charts, but really, once you get, even if you ignore those, it's just 300 pages of, oh, well, okay, how many things can you fit inside of a, a, a six-by-six-foot square box? Uh, when leather falls apart, what shreds does it come apart into? Uh, what is the average bone density of a female ogre when she is under the age of 35? So it's just an amazing concept of, of what happens when you take that concept of, I want to write a bunch of rules to its logical extreme. And then it's illogical extreme with all the gross sex stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's the other thing. The, the one thing I didn't mention about Heartbreaker components that I think is uh, like really essential is to not fill it with racist nonsense or sexist <laughs> nonsense. <laughs> or There's so much of it. <laughs> It's, uh, but there's nothing there's, like if honestly, if you are going to make a game about rape, 
there's nothing I can say to stop you because you already socially don't have the wherewithal to know that that's probably inappropriate. Yeah, I don't really think there's a point where I can go, oh, well, let me give you some pointers on that then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's really no advice I want to give you other than, you know, when you publish it, we're going to make fun of you for it after it inevitably fails. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, uh, and, and like I, I think any any book, like I'm amazed. I'm really truly amazed that uh, Fatal managed to like finish itself because there are so many heartbreakers. I'm sure that die before you you finish it. I can't finish like television shows. I can't I can't commit to watching all the way to the end credit scene in a lot of shows. The fact that anybody is able to put out 1300 pages of crazy charts and nonsense is amazing. It takes a remarkable lack of introspection. Well, it also takes a lack of ability to go back and look at what you've already written. That's what we talk about with Cinnabar. That that, that guy never turned the page back. No, <laughs> when you're making this game, you can tell a lot with these heartbreakers that they're like all right, what do I need to do? I need to make character creation. Okay, and then we'll go through the character creation and then move on to the next thing and never look back and see if what they just wrote matters with the character creation and then they'll make spells and not look back to see if it matters with what they wrote for martial classes. That was a big part of Fantasy Imperium for us, if I remember Mm. correctly, was that early on in the game it mentioned spell levels and then when it gets to spells, they don't have levels. (laughs) He just didn't go back and correct the other part of his book. (laughs) Well, he finished it. God damn it. it. Published. That's more than I can say. What do I, I make a podcast. He managed to get a published book out with a cool picture of his wife in a gypsy costume on the cover. Hey man, that's the dream. I think, yeah. I think that's the Absolutely. American dream. Yeah. Uh, so with that, I, I want to start wrapping things up, but I feel like we sure. should end on a positive note. Uh, so much of your show is critical. Uh, what games are you guys playing now at home that, that you just love and enjoy? Oh my goodness. <laughs> it's, this is a funny because we're currently playing Rifts. <laughs> but. It's got full <laughs> circle! Wait, wait. Give him a second because it gets worse. <laughs> so, not only is it Rifts, it's an entire different homebrew version of Rifts that uses D10. Oh my god, you guys. If you If you weren't aware that we were mega nerds at the start of this. I just need you to know that's how bad it is. Oh yeah. wow! It's 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 a very impressive game. I had nothing to do with the writing of it. I just suggest charms and try to break it. But uh, but yeah, there we we have a couple other friends who uh, I don't want to call out for this because I don't think they've ever made their game public. But they they uh, worked real real hard on writing a D10 translation of Rifts, and uh, also translated a lot of the uh, fluff of it to be different, so that you get. A it's very heartbreakery yeah. because it becomes more realistic in terms of the races and everything. Oh. No, no, hang on, hang on, not not in a not in a creepy way. That's, let it, let him walk that back and tell uh. you he's actually talking about like aliens and DBs and yeah, stuff. Yeah, so there so if you you're an elf, you're not just a fantasy elf. You come from a world where an elf would make sense, and you have an entire background and history and things like that. So you're not just an elf. You're a Kadoni. And yeah, so it is it is as heartbreakery as you can get. Oh and we are also God. currently writing up characters for the next edition of Exalted. Okay, wow. Oh, wow. 
<laughs> I would have figured with all of your praising of these rules light simplistic systems that you would be playing one of them. Well, I'll tell you the truth. It's primarily because we are very good friends with some people who are super rules heavy types, mm-hmm. and it's their game. Right. Uh, I keep trying. I've had very little success recently, but I keep trying to get a, my personal favorite game, which is fourth edition D anD. I'd really like to get that up and running. Uh, I, I like the tactical nature of it, and I like running games where. For me, a, a good night of gaming doesn't involve a bunch of yelling at each other about trade regulations over a table, but rather just sort of you enter a dungeon and now you hit a skeleton and use your cool power. So I've been trying to get that game going. We're just we're playing what we can with the friends that we really enjoy. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, that's that's basically how how it is. Um, I don't mm-hmm. know if that's how it'll be in a few years with the advent of online role playing, but certainly right now, you play what you can play. <laughs> Well, God knows, even probably about 15 years ago, I played me some Vampire the Masquerade online. <laughs> oh, man. So uh, I got killed by the insane clown posse that was actually werewolves. That was when I stopped playing Vampire the Masquerade <laughs> online. Now, I only played Vampire once by attending a single night of a LARP session where uh, a weirdo who was not nice told me I couldn't play the vampire I'd written up, and then I left. oh man well that sounds way better than my vampire the masquerade experience where uh larp started at our school and all the kids who were really into role playing got too deep yeah (laughs) my experience with larps is that it's mostly just people smoking in like the stairwell outside of a student lounge (laughs) (laughs) oh man well, guys, I, I really enjoyed having you on. I love talking about uh, the subject that's near and dear to my heart as I get a lot of heartbreakers suggested to me on my show. And I read them all with kindness and love unless they are full of racist bullshit. <laughs> um <laughs> So uh, thank you guys so much for for talking to me. Uh, Thank you guys for doing the podcast that you do. Uh, I really, really enjoy listening to you guys uh, every other week. Um, Is there anything that you would like to say to my audience before we sign off? Like perhaps Um, promote where they can see you you on social media. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Okay, we'd be happy to. Um, You can find us. It's at www dot system mastery podcast dot com you can also find us on twitter facebook or gmail just under system mastery uh, that's also my reddit handle but uh, honestly I, I i'm brand new to reddit so I, I might not be too useful to you there it's it's hard to break but, into uh, reddit just, too <laughs> yeah just just visit us on the website it's it's a fun website you can make comments you i i try to respond to as many of them as i can and uh you know we have an rss feed it's an easy podcast to listen to Assuming you're into our extremely weird subject matter. I mean, it, I feel like if you're into role-playing systems, you should be into weird, bad role-playing systems, or at least knowing and about even them. if you're not into it, you can at least enjoy the wonderful schadenfreude of us having to read these terrible books. Oh, yes. Each, every other week, we each uh, present our pain to you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like I love comic books. I love discussing comic books, but the only comic books I ever discuss are terrible. All the good ones, I like. <laughs> I don't need to say much more about them because they're so good. But I really always want to talk about that time Spider-Man came back from the dead. That was great. Which time? <laughs> uh, you know what? We we just followed where uh, other podcasts are going. If you think about the movie review podcasts, all mm-hmm. the really good ones are. 
they aren't reviewing good movies. They're reviewing Zardoz and Over the Top because th- that's funny. That's, that's, that's where the humor can be mined. Yeah, so... We get requests all the time to cover people's favorite RPGs where they say, oh, please cover, uh, you know, fourth of cover, you know, the very good Star Wars RPG. And you have to say, well, it's hard for us because you can talk for an hour going, well, this is a good system and it was it was nice to see it. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> uh, maybe you can do a lightning round. Actually, I think from some of the comments that I get from my listeners, there are a lot of people who think those good systems are very bad because they personally don't like one or two aspects of them. Oh, one of our favorite things to do is sit on high like Statler and Waldorf and watch the the war between third edition and fourth edition D and D. It is it is one of the greatest things the internet has ever provided in terms of bread and circuses. Oh man, those edition wars, dog! <laughs> I served in the edition wars. I seen some things. They just hurt us all. I had to burn down villages of women and children and. The damage was really hard to calculate because I didn't know what my modifiers were. <laughs> but guys, uh, seriously, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, and everybody, please check out it's System been our, Mastery. It's been our pleasure. Well, that's it for Critical Success this week, heroes. But don't worry, we will be back in the future. I have three very nearly finished episodes waiting to get out there. If you have a question you'd like answered on Critical Success, feel free to email us at gamemaster at oneshotpodcast.com. If you're looking for more RPG podcasts, I recommend our sister podcast, One Shot and Campaign. On One Shot, we sit down with improvisers, writers, and game creators to play role-playing games. Every month, we feature a brand new role-playing system with a brand new cast of players. On Campaign, Cat Murphy GMs the Star Wars Edge of the Empire role-playing system for a group of one-shot regulars, including myself. To find those and more, head over to OneShotPodcast.com. Also, be sure to check out our guest show, System Mastery, at SystemMasteryPodcast.com. If you like Critical Success, be sure to tell us on Twitter at OneShotRPG. Critical Success is a joint production between Paracosm Press and Peaches and Hot Sauce. Peaches and Hot Sauce is a Chicago-based comedy network with tons of great articles, videos, and podcasts for you to enjoy at peachesandhotsauce.com. Finally, that music, which is right now swelling up over my voice, is Be Your Own Pet with Adventure, courtesy of Infinity Cat Records. See you next time, heroes!